<clears throat> Dear Harland. think our ships did pass in the night? I don't know. But I'm turning mine around because I'm pretty sure I heard the sounds of sawing and hammering. I guess I'm gonna address two things. The first one I wish to address is your Rappaportion efforts. What I was talking about was the whole of humanity as mutineers. I never thought about the body of a human as a ship, but it makes a lot of sense. It's mutineers all the way down. And I guess not surprisingly, you do arrive here when you conclude we are all in the same boat. So, indeed. The second thing I wish to address is the idea of the truth seeker's lament, which I love. I think it's great. But it isn't a hands-in-the-air frustration with or criticism of the normative meta-epistemological skepticism points you in general bring to the table. It's more to the point you make on my behalf, albeit a show of support from a level down at the inner workings of our primate bodies. My point is the externalities we face today living in a civilization... You know, we're living in a society are probably similar to those we faced as foragers. But we're no longer foragers. It's when we go from foraging to farming and civilization, also known as complex society to anthropological researchers, that we morph into mutineers, like grasshoppers into locusts. I'm feeling really indulgent on this point, so I'm going to get up on my high horse and be cavalier in the old sense of the word. Or in the new. So there's different ways to approach this. So here's what I've learned. There's the evolutionary psychology view, which is that we're adapted to something different than we now face. Then there's anthropologist Richard Potts' idea, the variability selection hypothesis. Potts explains it as the effects of repeated dramatic shifting and Darwinian selection over time. It plays out over a span of recurrent extremes where some gene combinations and complex behaviors may be favored that enable resilient and novel responses to new conditions unlike those resulting from any single generation of Darwinian selection. Thus, 
as Potts has said, were adapted to novelty and to change itself. Then there's the notion that foragers were familiar with pretty much everything in their world. Foragers are rarely nonplussed. These all seem to be at odds with each other, which I can't help but point out is typical of mutineers. We humans are both different and similar to our ancestors, and the more things change, the more they stay the same. Considering all these views, these three views in particular, I think this is where we might get the hiccups. We're flying blind in a world that changes all the time, yet in small groups with few possessions and societal burdens, we're fine. In small groups, everyone gets a say. In small groups, we're flexible. We can pack up and go to a better place. Easy peasy. And as I understand it, if a member of a foraging group doesn't like how things are going, where the tribe dinghy is headed, they can always leave and get in another. Apparently, it's common for foragers to leave their group and just join another group. No harm, no foul. Now, they likely know some of those other people. Maybe they're family members or old friends. Maybe it isn't uncommon for foraging groups living in an area to encounter each other often enough that they build familiarity. But along with being heard and flexible, foragers are mobile. They can come and go as they please. What if some cultural anthropologists say foragers are egalitarian, mobile, and grateful? Sound like mutineers? But today, civilization is global. Though Elon Musk is aiming for Mars, we're still all stuck here on Earth. Besides, he's more probably part of the problem than the solution anyway. So there's still just no place to go. Additionally, it appears before global civilization, kingdoms were suspicious of even those they had a good rapport with. Hence, when the mysterious sea peoples invaded eastern Mediterranean seaports at the end of the Bronze Age, all but the Egyptians fared really poorly. Leaders called for aid from each other, but no one heard, or the letters were never sent. It may have been that these sea people had steel, and that this had an effect on their success, but other externalities like volcanic-induced climate change may have also helped play a role in the demise of the Bronze Age civilizations, weakening them from Mycenae to Egypt. Another point is that Smaller groups may evolve in a more radical fashion. At small sizes, populations are more at the mercy of accidents. Here, selection is relaxed. Selective retention gives way to random fixation or loss. Evolution is more volatile. This is the idea of drift. However, as I just pointed out, there is migration among the forager groups. And to some degree, this, you know, could reduce any fixation or loss due to genetic drift. But we're not talking about genes per se, are we? We're talking about something like Richard Dawkins' memes, his proposed base hereditary unit of culture. When it comes to genes, 
Drift occurs at all non-infinite population sizes, but its effects are most pronounced in small populations. Here, gene variants can become fixed or lost. If memes behave in a similar way, then mimetic differences among foraging groups may develop as memes become, again, themselves fixed or lost. I think of the maintenance of local traditions. One may think they're all selected, but memes at this scale seem often to be about saliency rather than relevancy. When memes are relevant, they spread over a larger area. Maybe relevance has to do with a health reason or a defensive reason or a production reason. Here, like a whole region will adopt the idea. But if one goes from small group to small group, there may be no rhyme or reason why one group wears a headdress with a feather and another with a leaf. It's idiosyncratic. Maybe it seemed cool at the time and everybody else imitated it. Maybe a good thing happened after and it became a fixed tradition because of superstition. What is the refrain of the new guy at work? At my old job, we did it a different way. And of course, to his new co-workers, this is totally annoying and they're not going to do it that way. Now, scale up to larger populations. When good or bad things happen in the light of our idiosyncrasies, new internet memes are forged. Witches burn at the stake. Power is leveraged on a whim. We're supposed to act in a civilized way! So I think about energy levels a lot. More than I would care to admit. Consider the model for electron orbitals, also known as the wave function, the Erwin Schrodinger guy. Let's just consider the simplest orbital shape, the S orbital. S is for simple, I guess, or it's for sphere, because that's kind of what it does. It creates a big ball. As external energy, like from heat or from a photon, perhaps, enters the atomic system, its energetic interaction excites the electron to a higher, less stable state. After all the excitement, the energy of the electron falls back to the lowest energy state, the, the ground state. This is how, by analogy, I think of resource enrichment episodic synchrony, for instance. As resources increase and the consumer population grows, it's as if it reaches a higher energy state and becomes unstable. To stabilize, one easy option is to drop to a lower state. But there are typically more organisms in a population than just the two electrons in an S orbit. And organisms want to live. So the population may fragment into smaller groups. That is, it diversifies. There's more to it than this, but I'll just, this will have to do for now. Now consider something like Joseph Tainter's theory of civilization collapse. In short, it is that complex societies are problem-solving entities. Problem-solving is problem-making. Solving more problems creates more problems. As a civilization grows, perhaps due to increased resources or policy changes or technological advancements, and has to solve more and more problems it makes for itself, it buckles under the pressure because of the decreasing returns of quote-unquote complexity. When a civilization collapses, it often just breaks up. Think of the fall of Rome and the end of the USSR. In the case of Rome, Latin itself evolved into the Romance languages from its 
cut off vulgar routes and cut off travel routes between various regions. Another quick analogy. There is such a thing as a mutation load. It basically is the buildup of deleterious or slightly deleterious mutations in a population. I think maybe we could also talk about a mimetic load. Basically, in this case, it would pertain to banal, inane, and bad ideas that get to live in a large population and just drift along and build up. There isn't enough energy in the system to vet them all. Nearly everyone has their quote-unquote take. But the stakes can be much higher in a civilization than in a smaller foraging society because the stability at such a large scale is really low, is really, is, it's really unstable, especially when problem-solving. As the Romanian existentialist philosopher Emil Churan wrote, Society, an inferno of saviors. Thus, at least initially, the world hasn't changed as much as what we've made of it has. Given this picture is acceptable at all, is it any wonder that civilizations collapse to these lower energy states in order to maintain more manageable economies and policies? Is it any wonder, quote-unquote, misinformation abounds before it does? Darwin had the idea that a species in the act of splitting exhibits a ton of variation. In his book, The Beak of the Finch, author Jonathan Weiner calls this idea of Darwin's a profusion and confusion. So why not memes? Why not have this happen with memes? I'll stop here. This is the highly derivative and galaxy-brained case I bring forward. The dead horse I beat. We are all mutineers because we live in a society. Well, a complex one at least. Thanks for bearing with me, your fellow dawdler, Ryan. Excuse me, I was waiting here. McKenna.